Welcome back to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined, rejoined, by Elliot Cohen, back from some travels. Uh, Elliot, as you all know, is the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS. Elliot, welcome back. Good to be back, Eric. And our guest is a former colleague of ours from government, David Kramer, the Bradford M. Freeman Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute. David has taught at Florida International University. He's been president of Freedom House, a fellow at the McCain Institute and the German Marshall Fund, and uh, many government positions, including Deputy Assistant Secretary for uh, Russia in the European Affairs Bureau at the State Department, as well as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. David, welcome. Eric and Elliot, it's great to be with you. Thanks very much. Uh, let's start. We're 105 or so days into the Russian war against Ukraine, an unprovoked war of aggression. We just had a G7 summit. We're about to have a NATO summit. David, how would you characterize the situation? How do you think the G7 did with regard to, to Ukraine? And what do you anticipate from the NATO summit coming forward in Madrid? Well, I think the, the G7 showed some good unity when it comes to Russia uh, with talking about a price cap on oil exports from Russia, talking about a ban on Russian gold and other commodities that uh, Russia depends on for hard currency earnings. And it is also talking about maintaining the sanctions, even increasing them to the extent that they can. Um, I think the main point was to show solidarity with Ukrainian President Zelensky. He joined them on, on Sunday and to ensure that Putin and the Kremlin don't see any gaps within the G7, that the G7 uh, maintained a united position. But I think they also need to underscore that they are going to significantly ramp up military assistance to Ukraine. The Ukrainians are suffering, I think, from a shortage of the equipment they need not only to defend themselves against the further Russian aggression, but to push back on Russian forces and try to get them out of, out of Ukraine. I think when it comes to the NATO summit, um, the issue of enlargement with Finland and Sweden, something uh, Eric in particular, you know, having served as ambassador to both Turkey and Finland, one of the few people I think out there who can uh, lay claim to that distinction. Um, that will be a, a big issue, but NATO also needs to signal its efforts to ramp up in a significant way military assistance to Ukraine. It should have been done uh, before. Um, it is not too late, but the longer the West waits in providing such assistance, the more Ukrainians are going to die and the more advance that Russia may, may make. David, I, I'd like to ask you uh, kind of a two-sided question. And that is, to what extent have you been surprised either by the Western reaction to this war or, or by the just the scale of brutality and blatantness of the Russian invasion? Because as, as I've been thinking about it, uh, I find both 
actually both somewhat beyond my expectations. And I had quite moderate expectations of the West and I had quite low expectations of Russia. But even so, I, I do find myself surprised. I'm just curious where you come down. Let me, let me start with the second part first, Eric, if, uh, Elliot, sorry, if I can. And, and that is, I don't find the Russian tactics and the Russian behavior all that surprising. If you think back to how Putin came to power in 1999 uh, through the brutal war in Chechnya, not the first time uh, Russia attacked its own uh, Muslim populated republic. Uh, 1994, they did the first time, but the second time was much more brutal than the first. And this came against the backdrop of four suspicious uh, bombings in Russia that killed 300 Russians that the Kremlin and Putin blamed on Chechen terrorists. And they leveled Grozny. I mean, we talk about the leveling of Mariupol, uh, the massacres in Bucha, but Grozny provided a good example of how Russian forces treat their own people. Uh, Chechens, after all, are Russian citizens, and this is what they did to their own people. Then, of course, we saw what Russian forces did in their intervention in Syria in 2015 um, with the leveling of, of Aleppo. Um, so it, it shouldn't come, I think, as a total shock that this is how Russian forces engage. When the Kremlin and Putin don't care about the human rights of their own people, they're obviously not going to care about the human rights and lives of uh, Syrians or Ukrainians or Georgians or whoever else it may be that is the target of Russian attacks. So in that sense, I wouldn't say I'm terribly shocked by what we have seen unfold in Russian tactics and behavior. Um, I, I am, I was uh, pleasantly, in this case, surprised by the Western reaction. Um, the Biden administration, I think, does deserve a lot of credit for working closely with allies, getting everyone on board, getting an unprecedented sanctions package together so quickly. Uh, it did have a quick impact um, in terms of dropping the value of the ruble, though it has since recovered, um, and in, in driving up interest rates and creating some shortages. Um, and, and I think the administration does deserve credit, as do our allies, in staying together on this. Um, there have been some missteps along the way. I wish we would stop telling Putin and the Russians what we won't do. We seem to do more of that sometimes than explaining what we will do or just leaving the situation ambiguous. And I think we have been, as we've already touched on, um, a little slow on the military assistance. The, the intelligence community got it right, the U.S. intelligence community, in predicting that Putin was going to invade. But they had it badly wrong in terms of how the invasion would unfold. They, like a lot of other people, I don't think the three of us, um, uh, predicted that the invasion would be over rather quickly, that Ukrainians would be defeated, Putin would take over. That then had, I think, disastrous consequences for decision making when it came to providing military assistance to Ukraine. The thinking was, well, if this is going to be over quickly, why, why provide the Ukrainians with such support? Yeah. Could I push back just a little bit on the f- first part? Because uh, without in any way diminishing the, you know, the horrific nature of what the Russians did in either Chechnya or Syria, it does seem to me there's something qualitatively different in Ukraine in two ways. First, there's just the scale of devastation and slaughter uh, that, we're, that we're talking about. But I think that, that you know, the fact that the Russians sort of view Ukraine as, uh, in a way, kind of the ancestral homeland, the fact that, you know, these are in a certain way their own people, uh, which, you know, you could argue the Chechens were always a sort of 
exotic other and the Syrians even more so, not that that in any way justifies the way they behaved. This is a kind of, it seems to me, this is a quantum step beyond. And the reason why I want to press on that is not, you know, just to say how horrible uh, this regime is, but it is to, to ask whether you think that we're now moving into a period where we're just dealing with a qualitatively different Russia than the Russia we've dealt with to this point, which, you know, in some ways acted like kind of a normal, brutal, great power, uh, if there is such a thing, and is now something that's a lot worse, something that's kind of rabid and vicious and in some ways almost deranged. Yeah, before you answer, David, let me jump on uh, Elliot's question as well, or just expand it a little bit. I mean, you know, like you, I uh, sort of monitor a little bit what uh, is appearing on Russian television. And to Elliot's point about Russia appearing a little bit unhinged, I mean, some of what the Kremlin propagandists are saying on uh, Russia One, for instance, just is like insane. And is that something we should be worried about? Or is that just being produced for a, a Russian audience to maintain Putin's hold on them and something we ought to not therefore take too seriously. Yeah, these are all good points. And and let me try to address them. Uh, Elliot, I think you're you're right that Ukrainians are certainly viewed differently than Chechens and certainly than Syrians. But remember what led to that second invasion were the murders of nearly 300 Russians, ethnic Russians. Um, And the Kremlin showed zero interest in that. And in fact, um, there likely were factions of either the FSB or the Ministry of Interior in cahoots possibly with the late Boris Berezovsky who were behind those bombings. And so the, the very idea that forces who wanted to change the political dynamics in Russia in 1999, remember Yuri Lushkov, the former mayor of Moscow, and Yevgeny Primakov, the former prime minister and foreign minister, were the two names mentioned as most likely successors to Putin. Uh, sorry, to Yeltsin uh, after his term would end in 2000. And the very idea that they might resort to killing 300 of their own citizens and not give a damn about getting to the real source and, and, and of, of those murders is something I think most Russians have real difficulty coming to grips with. You're right about the attitude that Putin in particular has had toward Ukraine. That article, what, 6,000 words screed he wrote in July, that basically dismissed something that we had heard when we were all in government, that Putin told President Bush in 2008, Ukraine's not a real country. To this day, he doesn't think Ukraine is a real country. He thinks we're all, they're all one people, as you, as you mentioned, Elliot. Um, and yet he views Ukrainians as clearly second-class citizens, as, as people who are uh, expendable, uh, just like he views his own army as expendable, too. He doesn't care what happens to the lives of those he sends into harm's way. And so, yes, it, it, it is arguably worse, although the, the, the toll in Chechnya is in the tens of thousands. Um, and, and so I, I don't think we can um, simply say that this is, this is a new chapter. Um, I, I think now coming to, to your point, Eric, the rhetoric is much worse this time around um, than it has been in the past where the constant threats of nuclear attack. I mean, remember Dmitry Kiselyov had, had a few years ago talked about reducing the United States to radioactive ash. Um, so it's not entirely new, but the frequency of it, the vehemence of it, 
uh, th those, I think, have reached those new levels. And I think most of it is huffing and puffing. Um, I think there is still to this day, as long as we maintain strength and show spine, fear and even respect for NATO uh, and a sense that they do not want a direct confrontation with NATO. Uh, you, you, you think about the bombings in Lviv and, and the regions in the western part of Ukraine. Not a single one has crossed the border into Poland. I think they are, they're not very careful about what they bomb inside Ukraine, but I think they have been very careful about not bombing anything outside Ukraine because they just don't want to risk something. Now, as we're talking, uh, you know, Lithuanians are nervous in light of the ban they've imposed on uh, Russian products that have been sanctioned by the EU. Um, I was on a Zoom earlier today talking to someone who lives in Estonia. There's a little nervousness there. Um, but I, I do think that to this day, um, it is unlikely that Putin will want to launch uh, a confrontation, direct confrontation with NATO, he can't defeat Ukraine. And so the idea of them taking on NATO, I think, is something a bridge too far, if you will. Although, as we speak, uh, the Lithuanians are experiencing a very serious cyber attack that appears to be at least part of the Russian response to the uh, refusal to allow sanctioned uh, goods to transit Lithuania to Kaliningrad. And I guess on the rhetoric point, I mean, I, I, like you, David, I'm inclined to think particularly the nuclear uh, threats are a bunch of huffing and puffing. But I, I guess what I find worrisome is the a combination of the eliminationist rhetoric towards Ukraine and Ukrainians, uh, which given the history, uh, you know, uh, under Stalin uh, is, is really worrisome uh, and particularly given the repeated uh, effort now by Putin to essentially weaponize hunger and attack Ukrainian agriculture, which is very redolent of, uh, you know, the, the 1930s in, in Ukraine. And also the, the sort of constant, and it's not just the guys on, you know, Russian television, that just not, you know, the Simonians and the Kisilyovs, et cetera. It's also Putin himself, <clears throat> you know, the the notion that, you know, he's Peter the Great just taking back what, you know, belongs to Russia. And as he said in 2016, you know, Russia has no borders, really. The constant invocation of attacks coming against NATO member states, you do worry that they might talk. I mean, I agree with you. They've been deterred up until now. But you do worry they might talk themselves into doing something rash and ill-considered that, you know, does lead to more dangerous consequences. If I could just, you know, follow on that a little bit. I mean, it does seem to me the implication of all this is that you're going to be dealing with a Russia that is kind of like a mad dog in the international system for quite some time. I mean, you've, it's, I, I don't know about you. I find it very hard to imagine a Russia that you could ever trust, a Russia that you could ever be a partner and you know in the way that Yeltsin could be a partner or Gorbachev could sort of be a partner on certain things this is just going to be a kind of a rabid dangerous aggressive angry paranoid violent and brutal country and that seems to me to require a of a real rethinking of some elements of our foreign policy i agree Elliot. i you know i wrote a book called Back to Containment, dealing with Putin's regime back in 2017. And I've felt this way about them for, for years. I, I, I think the 
idea of returning back to business as usual, back to normal relations, as long as Putin is in power, is impossible. I think it's I think it's absolutely absurd to think in those terms. Um, of course, there are people we we all three of us know who are advocating for a return to those days. Um, but unless we sacrifice our values or other countries in the process, there's no way we can do that. I, I think, Eric, what you were saying, again, absolutely right. It's not the first time that they've launched a cyber attack against the Baltic state. Of course, they did it when we were in government in 2007 against Estonia. Um, and we actually didn't know how to react and we hadn't developed a policy on what NATO should do in response to a major cyber attack. They've attacked us in cyber. Um, including during a pandemic going after American hospitals and uh, uh, medical facilities and meat processing plants and a major pipeline. Um, it's, it's not to take away from anything that is happening right now, whether in Ukraine, what happened today in Lithuania. Uh, all I'm saying is that there are some precursors to what we're seeing unfold today um, in Ukraine. It, it, it's not as if Putin woke up one day um, and just had a, a total epiphany. Um, I, I, I think he, he's been an evil, dangerous man for many, many years. I think the problem we face, perhaps a little more now than we did before, is that this goes beyond just Putin. Uh, th this is, I think, a much broader problem that we face now. I don't know what level of support there is for Putin's war against Ukraine. I think uh, conducting surveys in Russia pre-February 24th was extraordinarily challenging. It is virtually impossible, I would say now. You know, if a, if a stranger calls you up on the phone, you live in Omsk and asks, what do you think of Putin's war? Of course, they can't say war because that's a, a violation of the law. What do you think of the uh, technical, what is that, the, the uh, special operation? Um, they, they're of course gonna say it's wonderful uh, because they're afraid that the person they're talking to will report them. And so, um, but I do think that there is a level of support in Russian society for what's happening. The Russian Kremlin propaganda has had an impact and it has brainwashed a lot of people there into thinking that it is them against the rest of the world, that the rest of the world poses a threat to them. That I think is a deeper challenge we're gonna face whether Putin drops dead of a, of a heart attack tomorrow or not. Of course, one of the other precursors that you mentioned already, the Moscow apartment bombings in 1999, and then whatever whatever was going on in uh, Ryazan, whether that was a you know another plot that went awry or whether it was a rehearsal or for something else. So we've seen the the you know idea of false flag uh, attacks before, and of course, as you were saying, our intelligence was throughout much of the fall and into uh, the winter here talking about potential false flag. Now we're seeing that. Uh, cropping up again in the context of something you know a lot about, Belarus, and potentially attempting to drag uh, Belarus into the war. I mean, there are strikes already coming uh, Ukraine, a lot of the strikes over the weekend. I think we had 65 missile strikes uh, around you know, Ukraine over the weekend, and a lot of them appear to have originated in Belarus from either aircraft uh, flying over Belarusian airspace or from fixed sites there. Lukashenko just met, uh, obviously, with Putin. Putin talked about sending dual-capable, both conventional and nuclear missiles to to Belarus. Do you think Lukashenko is going to allow Belarus to be dragged into this? And doesn't that start to raise some more questions about the war spreading to Lithuania or, you know, because of Kaliningrad, etc.? I think we're seeing, actually, the invasion of two countries at the same time. 
Uh, one is being resisted fiercely by the Ukrainians, in many cases successfully, uh, much more difficult now in the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine. Uh, but the second invasion has been happening now for a, a number of years, and that's essentially Russia's takeover of Belarus. And the reason for it, particularly after August of 2020, when Lukashenko stole the election from Svetlana Sikhanovskaya, um, and that launched the worst crackdown in Belarus against peaceful protesters in that country, we have seen his growing dependence, uh, almost total dependence, on Russia for staying in power. And Russia has built up its military presence in Belarus, as you've, as you've indicated, Eric. Uh, they use Belarus for economic activity to try to get around sanctions, although Belarus has been largely sanctioned itself. Um, and Lukashenko is, is, is basically in Putin's pocket. There was a brief period during uh, this war after February 24th where Lukashenko was trying to portray himself as a potential peacemaker, as an intermediary between Putin and Zelensky, uh, a la the Minsk Accords that were signed in September 2014 and February 2015. That obviously is completely out, uh, out of question now. Um, Lukashenko himself has been sanctioned um, after August of 2020. And it's a reminder in mentioning Belarus how these regimes and how they treat their own people is indicative of how they behave in foreign policy. You look at the crackdown in, in August of 2020 and into the fall of 2020, and problems didn't stay inside Belarus's borders. In May of 2021, we saw Lukashenko and his military hijack a Ryanair uh, flight that was going from uh, Athens to, to Vilnius, and they forced it down because there was a blogger on board um, who was critical of Lukashenko. We saw Lukashenko with Putin's complicity weaponized migrants from the Middle East and South Asia to try to flood the zone of EU countries uh, along Belarus's borders. Um, so this, is, this has been going, this part, the, the second invasion of Belarus by Russia has been going on for a while, and we haven't done much of anything about it, we in the West. Um, and so I, you're, you're right that this does create problems in particular for Lithuania, but also for Poland as well because a lot of those migrants were being sent across the border into Poland. And, and so I think we're, we're seeing this play out now in a more dangerous way, particularly with the military activity that occurred over the weekend. But even in, in the initial phases of this, a lot of the forces uh, that were heading to a Kiev had come from Belarus territory. So uh, Putin, I think, is just trying to expand his horizons so that he can pose a threat from many different directions. But the challenge will be, and I think the two of you know this better than I do, Russia's ability to sustain this campaign in many different directions. I think there are serious questions about uh, Putin's ability to keep his forces intact in order to keep this campaign up for an extended period of time. And I think there are some real doubts about that. If I could, I want to kind of push that one to the limit. So, you know, it seems to me the distinction between Belarus and Russia is Lukashenko is a, a dictator who's kept in power by Russian support. You know, if he were cut off from that, um, I think it's fair to assume that he would he would go under. But you know, it's Putin is not dependent on you know, say Xi Jinping support. Um, he's a kind of authentic product of Russia. Does this? I mean, you're somebody who is, on the one hand, is a uh, certified Russianist with uh, all the educational credentials to back that up. 
Um, and yet you're also somebody who's thought very hard um, and been part of organizations that have thought very hard about pre-government and the ability of states to evolve to something better. Is what you've got in Russia basically the almost inevitable product of, I don't know, Russian history and culture? Or is it the kind of thing which you can imagine in a decade or two or, you know, breaking and getting something that's halfway decent out of there? Or should we just assume that this is, the, if, if you will, the cultural DNA is such and historical DNA is such that, you know, that this is just going to be a bad place doing bad things as far as the eye can see? Uh, Elliot, I, w- I would say that um, I don't think, and I think President Bush shares this view, but I'm obviously not going to speak for him, but I don't think any country is doomed to live under authoritarian regimes forever. Um, I, I think certainly the Russian people and Russian history have shown that there has been a heavy reliance on strong leaders. Um, you can't just say strong men, but mostly strong men. Um, you get Catherine the Great. But um, I would say the, 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 there is hope if the Putin regime is gone. There's not anything automatic that Russia, after the Putin regime is no longer there, that Russia will become a democratic state. But I can, I can predict this. As long as Putin and his regime remain in power, Russia has no hope whatsoever of moving in a more democratic direction. So it's, it's a little like what we've seen in the part of the world in the Middle East, where in Tunisia or Egypt or Libya, you name it, none of those countries had any hope of moving in a more democratic direction as long as Ben Ali and Gaddafi and Mubarak and those leaders stayed in power. With them gone, there was a possibility. We've now seen, unfortunately now in Tunisia too, that those hopes have kind of evaporated. But um, I think the same is true in Russia, that if there were a leader who came in, depending on how, after Putin, there could be the possibility of moving in a more democratic direction. One of you referenced earlier the Yeltsin years. Certainly, Russia was not a democracy in the 1990s, but Russia was a freer state than than it is now. I would argue that Russia now is a totalitarian system. It it is a system in which Putin pretty much exercises total control over information, and anyone who crosses him is going to wind up in prison at best and maybe dead at worst. I would also be curious to know what what Eric thinks about this, but it seems to me that one of the prerequisites for moving to something better is that there's some sort of alternative elite because, you know, if Putin drops dead tonight, so he gets replaced by Patrushev or, you know, another uh, sort of secret police mafioso type. And, you know, as you've seen the Russian liberals literally flee the country for their lives, and, you know, you just look at what's happened, say, in the Duma and elsewhere, it's kind of hard for me to see where an alternative leadership comes from, because it just, you know, I just don't see a, a countervailing elite unless it's possibly, you know, regional governors and mayors who are quite far from the center. But, I, you know, I defer to the two of you who know a lot more about Russia than I do, uh, whether that's possible or not. I'll give you my view, and, and David and I have talked a little bit about this and over the last few weeks. First, on the question of a counter-elite, Elliot, I mean, I think there were people at one point, I mean, the, the, the liberal opposition is, I think, pretty much completely discredited now in Russia, but there were people like Boris Nemtsov, who I think did 
pose a potential alternative. And that's why Putin had that's him killed. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think that leads me to my other point that I think is important to understand. I mean, I, I'm always a little nervous about essentialist arguments about countries, as you put it, cultural DNA. On the other hand, I do think that those things are real and you can't just gainsay them. The one thing I think that kind of might end up being a saving grace here is that this regime, and one reason why I think you can't do business with it and why you can't really negotiate with it, is is actually kind of a criminal enterprise that's taken over the country, headed by Putin. And in that sense, it's not a normal government. I think, by the way, this is one source of a lot of the dysfunction in the intelligence community that David was describing at the top of the of the uh, podcast, which is, you know, they, they got how the Russians would fight wrong, in part because they didn't really understand the depths of the corruption and rot inside the uh, Russian state. And, you know, Elliot, you've made the point that all militaries are in some sense an expression of the society from which they spring. And when you've got a rotten corrupt society, you're going to have a rotten, corrupt military. And that's been demonstrated, you know, sort of in spades. So I, I guess the, the question is, in the 90s, you know, when the Cold War ended, and I served in the embassy in Moscow in 87, 89, as the Soviet system was coming unwound, the one thing you heard from Russians all the time, I'm sure David heard this in the 90s as well, is we want to become a normal country. You know, we want to we want to become you know sort of normal, and and not have all of the, you know, extremity of what we had under the Soviet Union and an extreme ideology, uh, extremely poorly organized economy, etc. We we want to be normal, and I I do think that's out there, and I think it can be tapped again. But as David was saying earlier, the the Russian media coverage that Putin has created of himself, the dominance he has of the media, has dripped a lot of poison into the body politic. Somehow you're going to have to leach all of that out of there. David, I don't know. I, I defer to you on this. No, I think I think you 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 said it very well, Eric. I mean, I, I, look, Elliot, I think it depends on how the regime ends. Um, if, it, if Putin drops dead of a heart attack tomorrow, then you're likely to see a continuation of what we've been seeing for the past 22 years. Uh, where someone will come in because uh, it wasn't an end to the regime that was a statement. It was simply he expired. But if as a result of toughening economic uh, conditions, as a result of a, a, a rising death toll where mothers realize that their sons or husbands have died for no good reason whatsoever, and people get fed up, I'm not predicting a popular revolution, but a point where someone says, this is insane, this needs to stop, that could create some dynamics for a, a better future down the road. But I, I think a lot of it depends on how the regime comes to an end. Um, there, a lot of, one of the biggest problems that Russia is going to face is a lot of the best and the brightest are leaving the country right now. Um, in the thousands and thousands and possibly it will reach over a million people. And Putin wants this. He doesn't want the best and brightest there because he's afraid of them. He's afraid that their ideas, their challenges to him will pose a threat. Uh, I mean, this is where 
uh, over the years I've had debates with some people, not the two of you, but others, um, where I think Putin's interests and Russia's national interests do not coincide at all. Russia's national interests are not enhanced by instability along Russia's borders, but, but they, that does enhance Putin's interests because he doesn't want competing alternative, democratic, vibrant, prosperous models that are along Russia's borders. Um, a crackdown like we're seeing in Russia today, driving out the best and brightest, certainly not in Russia's national interest, but that's in Putin's interest because he, he's afraid of any potential threat. And, and so I think what we're seeing is if Putin were to go, it at least could create the opening for something better. Um, but, but the last point I would just make is I, what I hope we don't see is an effort by Western leaders to try to keep Putin in power because the devil we know is better than the devil we don't know. First of all, it's beyond our ability to do so. And secondly, we will become even worse enablers of the terribly corrupt and authoritarian behavior that Eric was just describing. So let me ask you a, a question, uh, if I might, drawing on your, and I know I'm sounding uncharacteristically gloomy about the long haul, but let me ask you a question drawing on your very wide expertise in democracy promotion globally. You know, one of the things that strikes me that's different now is that these really rotten regimes, wherever you look, uh, Russia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Iran, they've gotten very good at what the Greeks would call the techne of repression. Partly it's shared expertise, you know, they're, uh, they talk to each other, the Chinese help out, and, you know, the Chinese provide lots of the kit that you need to do this. Um, and they're just a lot more sophisticated than they used to be. I mean, it, it, and so your chance of those Ceausescu uh, kinds of moments where, you know, somebody in the security forces and a mob of people just say, oh, the hell with this, and the next thing you know, the dictator is up against the wall about to be shot by the mob, those moments aren't likely to happen anymore because they're just, they're really good at the technique, the techniques of repression. Am I missing something or is, you know, is there something that could cheer me up more about that? No, I I think that's, that's largely right. Um, It it takes some brave individuals. You, you mentioned one of them earlier, Elliot, Boris Nemtsov, who was willing to challenge Putin and, we all know what happened to him. He was shot and killed yards from the Kremlin. Um, it takes some incredibly courageous people to stand up to these regimes. But there are such people in virtually every country around the world that is under authoritarian control. Um, they continue to fight for their freedom. They continue to look to us for support, political, economic, financial, whatever the case may be. Um, and as long as there are people fighting for a better future for the countries, seems to me we have an obligation to do what we can to help them. Um, I also think there is a tendency to view these regimes as unbeatable, as indomitable. And I think think we run the risk of of overlooking what might be some some developments under, under under the rug, if you will, where these regimes seem stable, until they're not. And you never quite know what that tipping point could be. In some cases, it's elections. In some cases, it's a market vendor who's sick and tired of being shaken down by corrupt police, sets himself on fire, and literally ignites a, a revolution in Tunisia. Um, in other cases, it's 
um, interference in an election, as we saw in Ukraine in 2004, where there was an effort to steal an election, and thousands and thousands of Ukrainians turned out the streets and said, you're not going to steal our election. And then in 2014, the only country I can think of, by the way, that twice in a decade turned out in the streets, a second time at enormous risk, to demand an end to corruption, to a more democratic society, not to a stolen election and, and not to being under the Russian thumb. And the Ukrainians did it again. And this time, Putin, I think, has united them even more than he did the first time in 2014. So I, I, I do think that uh, President Xi in China is facing some pressures these days. I don't want to exaggerate those. But uh, it, the corruption that these regimes engage in is most of the people suffer from poverty. I think it runs the risk of being a tipping point in some of these places. Now, Putin has had a deal worked out with the Russian people, which is I'll help with the standard of living and things will get better. He, of course, was given a big boost by the spike in the price of oil early on in his tenure. Um, but the, the other part of the deal was you stay out of the politics and leave that to me. Well, that first part isn't working out so well, and I think it's going to get harder and harder. You've seen uh, over a thousand international companies pull out of Russia. A lot of these people, particularly in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg, are going to be unemployed, and their severance packages are running out, and there are going to be shortages, particularly come the fall. So for Putin, he he may be think he may think he's winning right now, but he's also going to be mindful of what's happening internally in his country. These regimes, I think, are not as powerful and strong as often is made out, they're made out to be. I want to come back to the economic dimension of this, David, and uh, also a little bit about the military before we wrap up. But I do want to throw out a provocation for both of you and see how you respond. I mean, David, you said a lot depends on how the regime ends in terms of what comes after Putin. I agree with that. Elliot and my colleague at Johns Hopkins, Sergei Rachenko, has you know written a piece uh, about why Russia needs to be humiliated. And of course, this was in response to Macron's comment that we shouldn't humiliate Russia, the constant invocations we see. Uh, David, you and I are subject to a lot of this in some of the Zooms we're on uh, about you know Versailles and the you know the poor Germans who after World War One were you know were subject to these humiliating peace terms, which is a Terrible misreading of the history, actually, I think. I think Elliot would agree with that. But you see this constantly. Uh, but Radchenko's point was, look, the reason we are where we are was that there wasn't enough of a coming to terms with the Soviet uh, past uh, in, in Yeltsin's Russia. And that laid the groundwork for essentially the security services to return and take over the country as Putin did after he was appointed by Yeltsin to be his successor. So I, I guess my question to Elliot and you, David, is, you know, so should we actually be trying to humiliate Russia in hopes that uh, we'll get something better afterwards? I'll say, yeah. I'm curious, but it's more important to know what David thinks. I, I, I you know, I know one should never reframe a question, I, but I would say I'm more interested in defeating Putin in Ukraine than humiliating. If humiliation comes with that defeat, I'm all for it. But I'm more interested right now in defeating him. And by, let me explain what I mean by defeat. It is helping the Ukrainians drive Russian forces off of Ukrainian territory. 
I actually think that will lead to the humiliation of the Putin regime. Though they, you know, they have such total control over the media now in Russia. The Novaya Gazette is shut down. Dojt uh, taken off. Echo Moscow no longer uh, broadcasting. They could probably still spin this in the most absurd ways possible. But I think people eventually will catch up. So I'm more interested in having us focus on helping Ukraine defeat the Russians. Um, and, and humiliation may be, you know, a cherry on top, so to speak. I, I, look, the, the, the Germany and Japan emerged as successful countries after being uh, uh, totally defeated and occupied by the United States and our allies, uh, dictating constitutions and limitations on what they could do afterward. Um, I, I don't envision that we will be occupying Russia any day, but I think second best would be helping its uh, next biggest neighbor soundly defeat Russia militarily. And, and I think uh, that's why we have to do everything we can to provide the Ukrainians with that assistance they need. As, as the three of us have said repeatedly, the Ukrainians aren't asking us to fight their battle for them. They are asking us to help them fight their battle for them. And it seems to me that's the least we can do. And I, you know, we, we all hear now the talk of Ukraine fatigue setting in not the ones dying on the battlefield. If anyone is tired of this war, it would be Ukrainians. And yet recent polls have showed tremendously high levels of support for uh, continuing the campaign until they prevail. There is a strong sense of confidence that Ukrainians will prevail. And so that, that's what I want to see. I want to see us defeat Putin on the Ukrainian battlefield so that he never does this again. And, and, and hopefully that would trigger some sort of change. And, and with that would come some humiliation, of course. So, so to be, be serious for a moment, I, I think humiliation, defeat is humiliation. Maybe, um, yeah. that's a good, that's a, and that's a good thing. And despite what I said earlier about the techniques of repression, I also think dictators, one thing dictators can't stand is being laughed at and looking ridiculous. And a, you know, a, a defeat of... Russian forces by the Ukrainians will have that effect. And if, you know, if part of what we're interested in here, which I absolutely think we should be, is the fatal undermining of Putin and that regime, I would say that's where we go. Eric, are you more prudent than I am on uh, this one? No, I'm, I'm, you know, as extreme as you are. Um, we need to wrap up because uh, we only have a limited amount of David's time. And, but I, I am reasonably uh, sanguine in the face of the recent, I don't want to say defeatism, but there's been a certain amount of kind of negative vibe coming out of the fight in Donbass. I think actually the Ukrainians have been very thoroughly uh, bleeding the Russians. Ukrainians are taking a lot of losses as well, but as uh, HIMARS start to come on the scene, you're already seeing some of the fruits of that. Um, I, I do think you're going to see, I mean, what happens in Donbass, in some sense, is much less important than what's happening in the South, and there needs to be more focus on the uh, the South. But I think if they can take back some of the territory Kherson in the South, that'll put them in a, in a good position. But what I worry about is less the military situation, where I think the trend lines ultimately favor Ukraine, than I am about the economy. David was talking about the sanctions and Russian economy contracting. There are a lot of different estimates of that. Elvira Nabulina, the central bank chief in Russia, has told Putin allegedly that the economy is going to contract by 12% this year because of sanctions. The IMF has said 
Goldman Sachs and the International Financial Institute said 30%, but the Ukrainian economy is contracting by, uh, you know, uh, 40 to 45%, maybe as much as 50%. There's 25 million tons of grain uh, waiting to be shipped out of, of Odessa that can't get out. The administration keeps talking about trying to do this overland. I just don't see how that happens. I think we've got to break the blockade and and get it out through the Black Sea. And I don't underestimate the complications and difficulties. Going to take getting the Turks on side, which won't be easy, uh, given all the things David mentioned at the top of the pod when he was talking about uh, Turkey blocking uh, Finland and Sweden. There's going to be a risk of escalation that we're going to have to run. There's demining. There's going to be insurance. There's going to be all sorts of complications. But I don't think we have any alternative. And I note that Seth Cropsey has suggested this in the Wall Street Journal in the last few days. Bob Zellick has suggested it in the Washington Post just today. David, do you agree that the economic part of this in some sense is more parlous than the military? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Eric. The Ukrainian economy was suffering even before February 24th, and that was uh, part of Putin's design uh, to inflict economic pain initially on Ukraine. And I think that's why Zelensky um, was not talking in such extreme terms, perhaps, as the Biden administration was looking for in the lead up to this. He was trying to avoid spooking Ukrainians and the economy um, because there aren't many foreign companies, for example, who want to invest in a uh, battered Ukraine economically or militarily. And foreign investment was already struggling in Ukraine because of problems with corruption and other things. I would argue uh, to sort of bring this full circle that one way for us to help the Ukrainians in a massive way and to hurt the Russian economy is to move from freezing to seizing the foreign, hard foreign currency reserves. We're talking about over $300 billion. The Russians were incredibly stupid to have left that hanging out there. And it is up to us now to figure out whatever legal mechanisms we need to transfer that money basically to Ukraine with proper oversight to make sure it doesn't feed into corruption that Ukraine has suffered from before. Um, but that also means $300 billion not going back to Russia and its economy. So I think that's a great way to boost the Ukrainian economy and also really ding the Russian economy at the same time. Elliot, I'm going to give you the last word. No, I think that um, I think that all makes sense. I um, I guess the the thought that I have in all this is, although on, on the one hand I think the administration has has been foolish in in some respects in t- terms of um, scaring itself about escalation. The fact is that we are moving in a direction of increased Western measures, which I'm all in favor of, whether it's breaking the blockade or seizing their assets. So I think what we're the direction that that points is a more and more intense conflict between the United States and Russia. And I, you know, you can imagine at some point the Russians do decide, well, the way to escalate this a little bit more in a way that they may think benefits them is to fire a barrage of missiles at Poland or maybe one of the smaller East European countries. Um, and I just think we need to be we need to understand that and accept it. And I, you know, I do, because I don't think the Russians at the end of the day go nuclear. And I do think that they're at a disadvantage vis-a-vis NATO, but that it seems to me is the path we're on. I should have turned that into a question. I guess I made it more as a statement. 
David, we're going to have to let you go, but uh, given the fact that I don't think this issue is going away, we're going to reserve the right to have you back on Shield of the Republic to help us sort through all this. But thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, you and Elliot have uh, two men for whom I have great respect and have learned a lot from over the years and enjoyed uh, being with you today. So thanks very much. Same here. Thank you, David. And we'll be back with Shield of the Republic. That's today's Shield of the Republic. Now that we're back, please rate us, review us, uh, and send us email at shieldoftherepublic at gmail.com.